And then another story we have is with our premium uh, range, which is our Lady May. Um, and that's named after the owner made de Lancusa. And that's basically, it was a wine that we have made to age for a long period of time. And it really stemmed from a great bottle of wine that uh, Madame de Lancusa and myself shared. And um, that was an old, very old bottle of Chateau Lafitte from um, 1873 that we had. In this episode, I'm talking to Luke O'Connigan, winemaker at Glen Ellie Wine Estate in South Africa. Hi there, Petra. Hi, Luke. How are you? Very good. I'm so sorry about this morning. No problem at all. <laughs> I'll come to Glen Ellie and you can give me a glass of wine to make up. <laughs> Definitely. It's a deal. <laughs> Um, it's so wonderful to talk to you and um, uh, I read about uh, Glen Ellie and the, the wine. You've got a lovely story on the farm there. No, it's a very unique story and it's a, it's a story that's very passionate to all of us that work on the farm. And uh, it's just uh, fantastic to be able to work with a family that's got such a long winemaking history. I mean... It's incredible to think that they've been involved in wine since 1783, all the way through to now. Wow. Amazing. But tell me, um, how did you end up, uh, tell me about your career. Uh, what what drove you to um, become a winemaker? Really, uh, it was by accident that I fell into this career um, because I, when I finished school, I actually wanted to go and study veterinary science. And it was a toss-up between veterinary science and engineering. Um, and at that stage, you couldn't go straight to uh, veterinary school. You had to do at least the first year of BSc um, before you headed up to Honest Depot. Uh, so I started uh, my BSc and when I was talking to my father about it, he said, you know, what? don't do just one year. If you've started, finish the whole uh, degree and then you can go up because then you've got another degree behind your name. Um, so I started down that track and while I was studying at uh, Stellenbosch University, I was working on wine farms at the same time to earn some extra pocket money, as it were. And I was particularly working in the Constantia Valley. And I loved what I was doing. And I thought maybe this should be the career option rather than going into veterinary science. And when I went to speak to the dean of the faculty, it was very easy to uh, uh, transfer what I'd already studied across. Because like... Uh, anything in the medical field, winemaking is also very mathematical and chemistry based. So I got all the credits. So it was very easy for me to switch across to winemaking. So I headed wow. across and I've never looked back and I've loved it ever mm. since. Yeah. And it's, uh, you're saying now that it's because it is very scientific, but it's also um, what I've read. It's, it's also a, a form of art making wine it's not as straightforward as just saying it's a science yeah. I, I agree with that statement so wholeheartedly i mean it's a it's a a field that ties together very closely both um 
the artistic side of individuals as well as the um, scientific side. Um, I think for me, the, sign, the artistic side really comes through when you're starting to put wines together and you're starting to blend things. Um, and that's where you can really show a lot of flair. And uh, you have to remember, it's, I think the best analogy for me when I'm thinking of uh, winemaking, when it comes to the artistic side, is that if you think about a piece of music, it's fantastic listening to an, uh, a violinist play a piece of music by his or herself. But when you put that violinist into an orchestra and you've got the influence of the wind instruments and the brass instruments alongside it, the piece of music seems to be far greater and very rich because of the whole orchestra playing its uh, part in it. But you can still hear the individual violinist play. Um, and you can see what each instrument is bringing to the greater picture. And the same applies to blending for me with wines, because you can start to layer flavors and textures from the different varietals that you're using to make up a blend. Um, and that layering and texturing and uh, aromatic profile building is what makes it so exciting and such an art form. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and I think, you know, um, uh, I've been talking to a few winemakers and they all say also that there are so many factors involved um, in the process, you know, that uh, that you have to take into consideration. And uh, But now I want to ask you, um, uh, at Glen Ellie, for example, how did you end up uh, at the farm? I ended up here uh, because I was actually working at our neighbors um, as a, like a, a junior assistant and I needed somewhere to go to go up and they were looking for a winemaker and I had spent a lot of time in, the, in um, France and in the United States. So I came across and I applied and I managed to get the, the job. I was very fortunate because um, I got the position here and we started from scratch and I was actually uh, only 26 going on 27 years of, of age when I wow. started. So uh, I was quite young to be given uh, such a position. Yeah. Now, um, and on a farm that, um, that's got so much history, um, is there a lot of pressure for you to, um, when you make the wine? No, I don't think there's a lot of pressure because we're always trying to do, do the best and bring out the best expressions for uh, that vintage of a wine coming to the fore. Um, I think we're very fortunate on the property here with having the owners that we have that they never put in any um, uh, stringent guidelines, if you want to put it like that. They, their approach has always been... We in South Africa, we're not looking to make an exact replica of, let's say, Bordeaux or Burgundy. We want you guys to make the best wines you think is possible to express our site. I mean, uh, the French have the lovely word for it, which is terroir, which encompasses uh, your whole site, your geography, your geology, everything that takes past, uh, part of the vintage and that's encapsulated in the wine. And that's what we try and bring to the fore is have wines that have real personality and express themselves the best um, 
for that particular time because I feel a bottle of wine is really it's a snapshot of a time period of both the geography and geology. Yeah, and uh, um, I've also heard a winemaker saying that, you know, it's South Africa is a young wine country, actually, uh, compared to the rest of, of the world. And, um, and that it's so important to stick to what South Africa provides in the form of, of uh, the vines and the, the soil and, the, and the, the climate as well to make the wine. Yes, I think I tend to agree with that uh, sentiment because, yes, we have been making wines. You can track it back that we've been making wines for over 350 years, which is actually in line with uh, where Bordeaux is in France. But you must remember for many years after Phylloxera hit, we weren't producing anything in this uh, country. So we had a long break. And then through isolation due to apartheid and everything like that, it's also affected the industry quite badly. So I think it's, um, sorry, a printer's going in the background. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it's what's quite uh, interesting is I think in the past, we often maybe fell into a trap of trying to mimic uh, places overseas like Bordeaux or Burgundy or United States. But now we've got a much more newfound confidence, if you want to put it like that. And we really want to express what South Africa has to offer and its own individuality that it uh, gives to a wine. And it's uh, expressing much more confidence into the industry. But um, what I've also heard uh, once um, is that for exporting South African wine, um, the wine has to have a specific taste because otherwise, in in Europe, uh, it's it's not uh, you know people don't like it. Is that true? Is that true that you have to sort of uh, change the wine a little bit so that it it uh, is accepted for the for the export market? I don't think so. I think you must make wine that appeals to yourself and that you have full confidence in. Um, I mean, given my background, spending so much time in uh, France and everything, uh, and then obviously having French owners, at Glenelg we tend to have wines that we like to refer to as uh, South African wines with a French touch, and people okay. find them much more European in their, in their expression. Whereas other wines in South Africa are much more rich and vibrant. Um, I think where that statement maybe comes from is a very broad uh, statement in the sense that I think a lot of um, overseas markets associate South African wine with uh, very, very bold flavors and being very big because of our warm climates and our conditions. But I don't think it's necessary that you have to make that style to make it work overseas. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, uh, wines produced in South Africa that are incredibly nuanced and fine and uh, aren't typically South African, if you want to put it like that, in the greater sense of things, and they do exceptionally well on the export market. So I think it's all about making your... Uh, expression of what you think the wine and have it with confidence 
that you have in the product. Okay, so Luke, now tell me a little bit about the story of the farm. Well, the property itself, it's its owned by a very famous lady called Maid de Lancasa, and she was famed for owning a number of Bordeaux chateaux, um, the jewel and the crown being Chateau Pichon Comtesse de la Lente. But their family has been involved in the Bordeaux uh, wine scene uh, since 1783. They've been continuously involved in vinification, and they owned a number of Bordeaux chateaus over that period of time. Um, and when she was 78 years of age, she decided she needed a new challenge in her life. So she actually sold everything up in France and she's moved, she moved uh, to South Africa and started this uh, project. Um, she's now 97 years of age and she's wow. still very much involved with us. Um, and I think a lot of people ask the question, why did she choose South Africa and, and not somewhere else in the world like Australia or United States and stuff when she was looking around? But uh, she saw a lot of things in South Africa uh, that she she thought it was uh, untapped potential. She thought our soils here are, were incredible because of how, how old our soils are, because we have some of the oldest viticultural soils in the world. Um, she also, when she was at Pichon, she um, was the president of a big international uh, competition um, at the IWSC. And uh, when she was the president of that uh, competition, she started a, a trophy for the best blended red wines in the world. And that trophy was actually won uh, the most times by South African producers. Wow. And she became quite friendly with them. And when she handed her presidency on, she actually handed it on to uh, a very well-known South African called Anton Rupert. And they became great friends. And so she was traveling backwards and forwards to the, the country. And that's where her absolute love for it. And she thought, actually, you know what? There's a huge potential here that nobody's actually uh, looked at. Wow. So, well, um, wonderful that she that this happened for her and that had that that happened for South African wines. It is because I think it was a big statement when she came out. Then some people started to say, actually, look at a lot of uh, border and there's a more international interest coming into our industry. Um, so I think it definitely shone a light on the South African wine industry. Um, and helped it uh, going forward as well. So now, um, also what I find very interesting about the wines are um, usually wines have a little story or the label have a little story. Do you have uh, some of your wines uh, that you would like to, to talk about and some special um, bottles? Yeah, I think, uh, I think with the wines, it's all about a story often. Yeah. Um, and I mean, if you're looking at, uh, we've got a number of ranges uh, uh, and our varietal range and our more accessible range is called the Glass Collection. And it is so cool because uh, Madame de Lancaster is a passionate collector of glassware and she, um, she has a museum collection of glassware on the property here. Uh, which starts from early Roman pieces all the way through to current glass pieces. 
And the reason why she was passionate about collecting glass is that she felt glass and wine form perfect partners for one another. And where that whole thought process comes from is if you think about glass philosophically, it shares many of the same attributes as what um, wine does. I mean, the greatest wines in the world, their vines are planted in the poorer soils you get, and glass comes from the poorer soil, there's sand. Both of them require um, man to get them in the states that they are. They're both uh, art forms in their own rights. They also um, require the heat of the sun to ripen the fruit like you need the heat of the furnace to melt sand down to uh, glass. They're both liquids in their basic alkalemic states. But I think the most important points for me are the first one being that you're taking something that's very poor in its raw state and you're adding great value and beauty to it. And the second one is that just like in um, wine where we have different terroir that brings out different expressions and a varietal, you have a similar sort of thing in uh, glass because you've got different silica that make up different types of glass, which is also like a terroir sort of base to glass. And that's why we feel they're perfect partners for one another and you drink one from the other. And then another story we have is with our premium um, range, which is our Lady May. Um, and that's named after the owner May de Lancasa. And that's basically, it was a wine that we have made to age for a long period of time. And it really stemmed from a great bottle of wine that uh, Madame de Lancasa and myself shared. And um, that was an old, very old bottle of Chateau Lafitte from um, 1873 that we had. So, and wow. it was incredible to see that a wine that was well over 100 years of age still had so much nuance, it still had fruit, texture, balance, everything that you expect from a wine. And it was incredible to see something that could live for that length of time. And then the third range that we have, which is our estate range, uh, we make a wine in it, which we refer to as like our old school claret. Because if you go back into history, uh, when the Bordelais were exporting a, a lot of their wine around the world, it was called claret. And what they used to do is they used to have their varietals that they were allowed to use in Bordeaux, which are your Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, Merlot, Petit Verdot, and uh, Malbec. But what they used to do is they used to refer to it as hermitaging their wine. So they used to bring some Syrah in from North Africa, from Algeria or Morocco, or from the Northern Rome, and they blend it into their wines, and then they would export that as claret. And they used to use about 12 to 15% of it. Um, so the state reserve red that we have is a a blend that we have used a little bit of a Syrah or Shiraz in it with the Bordeaux varietals to give a feel of what the original clarets were that were exported. Wow, that's so interesting. Uh, but and, and now do you use all the, the grapes from your farm? Yes, everything is estate grown uh, at this stage um, and we bottle and do everything. So actually all the wines are estate wines. And now, um, what is the, because these, uh, the, you talking about this very old wine and, and that it was preserved and, and that it could still have this wonderful taste. Um, 
what do you think was the difference then? Because I mean, then they 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 uh, made wine probably more organically and and um, with natural fermentation and natural processes. Um, what do you think was the, or, or do you think this could have been the difference between winemaking now and to then? No, I think uh, today we still do a lot of processes naturally and there's a lot more farms and everything going organically as well. Uh, I think there is a, a number of differences that you have to remember. Um, philosophically, if you go back into the old days, um, when you were consuming wine, you weren't consuming wine that you had purchased. You were consuming wine that your parents and your grandparents had purchased. And that's why traditionally the big old uh, um, stately homes that you have in Europe and around the world have these huge underground cellars to hold all the bottles of wine. You have to also remember back in those days, um, your your palate and what you ate was very different to today. So with the advent of things like uh, Coca-Cola and stuff, most people's palates today are craving a lot more uh, sweetness and things like that. And they, and they don't like green flavors and so much. So the very old wines, when you're looking at them that uh, Bordeaux used to produce, um, they were probably uh, very, very tannic they're quite austere, but green. And that's why their alcohols were also a lot lower then because they used to be around 11 and 11 and a half percent. But if you had to drink those wines straight away from the bottle when they're very young, they're probably nearly undrinkable because of the tannin and the greenness. But because you have left them for so many years in a cellar, they have matured slowly in the bottle. They become these incredible wines with so much finesse. Whereas today, um, wine is much more immediate. Uh, I think the last stat that I saw that came out was something like in the UK alone, uh, something like 89% of all wine is consumed within 24 hours of purchase. Um, So people are much more, uh, they want immediacy. They're looking for a very different fruit profile that's much more opulent and bigger. Um, And that's why alcohol levels have also risen slightly to achieve that um, uh, um, fruit profile. Um, So they're very different uh, processes. Um, We Today with the... Our modern styles, yes, we're still getting wines that can age uh, fantastically. Um, I'm not sure whether we're going to get wines that can age for 100 years like we used to get in the past. But one thing that there is no doubt with modern techniques that we we uh, use today, I don't necessarily think in great vintages it makes the wines better. But with modern techniques, it means that in more moderate or weaker vintages, we can make the wines better so you don't have as big a vintage variation between a great vintage and a weaker vintage. And how much of the natural process um, of fermentation is taken away uh, when you have to do that? I don't think it's any. I mean, if I think of Glen Ellie, we have never used commercial yeasts. We've always relied on the natural yeast and the air and environment around us to do it. Uh, 
we don't we try our best not to acidify we only acidify if it's really uh, necessary um so we have always followed ourselves a very philosophically a very natural process because we want to get the wine to express as much sense of its site and place as possible um so I don't think there's a very much change with that uh, sort of philosophy. And a, a lot of people these days out there are following a much more holistic and trying to be much more natural with their approach going back. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you can use commercial yeast if you want, but not everybody wants to use it like ourselves. Um, and it's not a bad thing. If you want to use it, you can use it for different things because you can get different expressions coming up. I mean, I think the big challenge that we have been facing on the property here ourselves is that we are in the whole process of changing the whole property to organics at the moment. So your whole philosophy with regards to how you do vineyard practices, everything has to change and become uh, much more conscious of things. And so far, it's been very successful for us. Um, and we'll see if it, if it continues on that trend, hopefully. Yeah. Well, this is uh, so reassuring uh, also because I think this is so important that it it starts there, you know, uh, because you you are very much also the wine is also, or your work is also connected to the soil. Well, the soil is everything. And you must remember, you're actually really working with a, a very thin layer of soil, you know, with your top soils and everything. And then, yes, the roots go down uh, to get some nutrients and uh, minerals lower down. But you have to have a lot of life in the soil. And that ultimately brings the expression of your fruit coming through. If the soil is very healthy, it means that your vine can be naturally healthy. So it's got natural more resistance against disease and things like that. So it's a whole cyclical process that you have to uh, tie in and, uh, and try and nurture. Mm. But now, look, uh, tell me, what is your wish for the future? <laughs> I think what I wish for the future at the moment is that the world could get back to a, a sense of normality yeah. <laughs> and everybody could just get on again. We could just continue. Uh, I think that's a, a bigger, my biggest wish that uh, we would find love in everybody's hearts again. So. Yeah. No, that's, that's true. And for, for young uh, winemakers, um, uh, what what would your advice be for a young winemaker just finishing their studies and and having to start in this career? I would advise that they should go and travel as much as possible before they decide to settle down. Um, you look at what's happening in different parts of the world, whether you go to uh, France or Italy or you go to... Uh, United States or Australia or New Zealand, just go and get a feel for what's happening around and, and, and see different uh, varieties, different techniques, taste wines, taste, 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 taste. It's so vital to keep on tasting. And enjoy your travels and then come back and then you've got a much more holistic approach to uh, your winemaking uh, rather than settling, settling down immediately. 
it's interesting that you say that about the taste, the taste different wines. Why, why is that so important? Well, I think it's vitally important to taste different wines so you can understand different concepts, get to see how it might be the same varietal, but it's been expressed in very different ways due to climate and uh, soils and things. And by tasting, you're starting to develop your own palate. Um, and that is so vital when it comes to blending later down the line and finding what your own identity is going to be when you're making wines. Okay, so Luke, now if somebody comes to you for a braai, what bottle would you open? <laughs> <laughs> That's such a difficult one because I'm such a fair weather drinker. I drink anything. And it's oh, really? A, and, a, and it depends on what mood I'm in. Um, it'll be a, such a difficult... I probably wouldn't tie it down to a bottle. I'd probably tie it down to um, a style of wine. Okay. And I'd probably tend to lead towards drinking like a, a nice Bordeaux blend, whether it comes from uh, France itself or from the United States or South Africa or uh, New Zealand. And just a really great Bordeaux. Okay. But now I have one last question for you. Um, I know you have a, a lovely, um, I think you have a bistro there on the farm as well. Yes. But um, is there somewhere else uh, in your area that you could give a shout out to? A, a nice restaurant or a coffee shop that you visit regularly? Um, there's a few places that uh, yeah. I uh, give shout outs to. Uh, I, um, I really enjoy if I'm looking for a, a good evening meal and stuff that's uh, got a little bit of French influence to it or so, I'd go to Reichardt's in the Stellenbosch. Or if I enjoy, I'm looking for sushi because I, I love uh, uh, Japanese uh, cooking. There's a, a place called Genki, which does quite nice uh, yeah, Japanese influenced foods. And then uh, if I'm looking for pastas, I go to a place called Asta La Pasta as well. Oh, okay. <laughs> you and Tyrell, um, my work seems to have the same um, eating habits because he... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to speak to Tyrell. <laughs> because he also mentioned the same restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> well you mentioned your bistro so um this is how i came to to um uh, across your your farm so because he he mentioned you then okay fantastic yeah <laughs> but anyway <laughs> you should take him to dinner i will do <laughs> But uh, Luke, this is so lovely to talk to you. I'm coming uh, to visit you when I come to South Africa. You must, please do. Petra. Yeah, you owe me a glass of wine. I do. <laughs> and a meal in the bistro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, have a lovely evening. I will do. You too. Thank you so much.